thank you for the word of God. Thank you that you are always faithful to your word. What a remarkable passage. Um, uh, Lord, even as, I, even as I preach here, Lord, would you disciple me? Help me. Train me. Uh, help me to be under your yoke as, a, as one who needs to learn that still. And, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, here's the big question. Can people change? Can people change? Um, don't we tend to size people up? You know, you know their personality. Maybe they took a personality a, a quiz, a profile, a test. Perhaps you work with someone and you have figured out that they just can't change. You know their past. You know their resume. Maybe you are frustrated with someone at work. And uh, you uh, maybe uh, work around them because, uh, you know, to get things done, that just means they're never going to help you or something. In other words, it's a pretty important idea to believe that people can change, isn't it? Like, it's a real big idea, I think. Like, imagine being in a marriage where you don't think your spouse can change. Uh, Maybe you've been trying to change them. Uh, But that would be a sad place to be, right? Um, And so... We want to think, think about your, your parenting. If, if you, you know, you as a parent are coming to the conclusion that your children can't change, right? Well, that's, that's, a, that's something we want to avoid, right, in our thinking. But change, uh, kind of a, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a belief, uh, and I think it's a true belief, and that is that a person has to experience a great deal of weakness, uh, an alcoholic, has to hit the bottom, right, um, before they will begin to look up and say, I need help, right? And so a person has to experience a great deal of weakness, a great deal of weakness. Uh, something has to, they have to be confronted with something. Does that make sense, right? So they have to be confronted with something, and that is pretty profound, right? And such that it gets their attention, and they begin to say to themselves, oh, I get it, I get it, right? So we, we want to believe that people can change. But boy, the early church, right? the early New Testament church was on the run in Jerusalem at this time in the book of Acts. And they had scattered out of Jerusalem. And this massive persecution was taking place through the leadership, the Pharisees. Uh, and the church was on the run. And... Uh, and there was one particular character named Saul of Tarsus who had just taken on this whole role of persecuting Christians and grabbing them in their homes and locking them up. And, and he's in, in the background in the book of Acts, as we approach Acts 9, he's already shown up in Acts 7 and that he was there with Stephen the first martyr of that early church, when Stephen was stoned, he was there collecting and, and holding the cloaks of those who threw stones. And he was in agreement of what was going on. A young man, I, I imagine he's in his, young tw- his early 20s, and he's excelled beyond all his peers in his, in his zeal for, for being a Pharisee. And... Uh, he even reflects in Acts 26 as he's giving a, a testimony to King Agrippa, story coming up in Acts. 
and he's reflecting again on his conversion. He does that multiple times. And he's reflecting. He's saying, you know, King Agrippa, <laughs> reflecting on his behavior here in Acts 9. Uh, and he says, he says, uh, I was obsessed. Um, I traveled to foreign cities to get Christians. In, as he reflects on it, he's even astonished at himself as he thinks back about how, how much he was owned by his anger. He's got boundary issues, we would say today, right? Now, just as I was looking at this, I, I kind of got caught up with the letter B. So you've got a lot of Bs today, all right? And alliteration, he's breathing threats. We'll look at that. He's burdened with goads. That comes from another text, Acts 26. Uh, he's bringing questions. Uh, he's brought to repentance, and he's beginning a complete reversal. So let's just explore some of these in the time we have. Um, first, he's breathing threats. Um, what kind of threats? Threats of murder. So if you're hanging around him in the, on the street corner, and he's plotting his next adventure... If you want to hear him breathe, listen to that, breathing. He's like a dragon. He's <laughs> breathing. Okay, I'm heading to Damascus next. He's breathing. He's coming out of it, this anger. He, is, he refers to himself in Acts 22, 3 as God's zealot. Um, it's been... Uh, Observe that pastors, um, by way of these psychological tests, this little side note here, as I think about him, I think we're dealing with a narcissist. Um, Talk more about that. But it's interesting about pastors. I mean, here I am, right? And I'm telling you about God. Well, that's kind of a bold thing to do, isn't it? Right? And when when they analyze the the brains and the, the personalities of pastors... They do all these psychological tests on them. They score at a high level of being narcissists. Did you know that? I mean, imagine, now here I am, going to, you know, I'll be like a fire-breathing dragon telling you about God, right? Well, imagine if you, you, you feel that people have compromised your religion and they have, they're diverting believers away from, from the true belief. And it's your job to corral them and to control them and to manipulate them and to use your power, right? Uh, That's much more than a pulpit, man. So he's a fire-breathing zealot, and he states, reflecting on this throughout the New Testament, you can find him reflecting on this. And he says, as to the law, Philippians 3, he says, a Pharisee, need I say more? You can't touch me. You can't blame me on anything. I'm walking the line. As to the law, a Pharisee. That's what he said to the Philippians. And now he has this passionate jealousy on behalf of God. And a zealot perceived that God's glory or the purity of God's people was being compromised. He was trained in these one of the great rabbinic schools in Jerusalem, sat under the grandson of one of the great rabbis, and he couldn't make any sense of Jesus as Messiah, a condemned criminal on a, on a cross. 
dying this terrible death. This is a no-brainer for, for someone who gleans their righteousness from, from some moral adherence to the law. He is here seeking authorization in Damascus to throw believers in jail. And this sets up this dramatic conversion. The church is on its heels. Who is going to change this man? Most people, I would think, don't believe it's possible. He is so entrenched in what he wants. There's no way he will ever change. And this conversion sends a huge message to the early church. There is no one beyond the reach of the grace that's in the gospel. This is intended to bolster the the early church. And anyone who would read Luke's account would begin to speak and pray and to act more boldly as one who is so zealous is turned around. And oh, what what a turnaround this is. What a story of change. Oh, it's just be just beautiful. Just to spend spend time in Acts seven and Acts nine, and who is this guy Saul? And then just start reflecting on the words he says in the New Testament. Just have a Bible study, get a big yellow pad out, and just have some fun with that. The one who can't love now becomes a lover. The one who can't have any patience says, "Oh, the fruit of the spirit is patience." The one who can't bear up with anyone and wants to change them says, "Oh, the, the fruit of the spirit is forbearing." The one who can't descend into someone else's concerns or someone else's issues or or the one who can't relate to other people now says, whatever I had going for me, Philippians chapter 3, I count count as dung that I might gain Christ. And he descends like Christ in order to serve Christ's church, descends to this earth Christ does as a servant and the Apostle Paul picks up the same spirit of Christ. Oh, what a great time that would be just to spend some time just contrasting Saul as we, are, we introduced to him and, and Paul, the, the Apostle. And then secondly, Saul is uh, not only uh, breathing threats, he's burdened. He's burdened with goads. That's a funny English word, isn't it? Um, it's a, it's a term from the world of farming. Uh, a goad was, a, was part of a kind of a framework that was around an ox usually. Um, and it was a spike uh, in the wood. And so behind the, the legs, the, the, um, the legs of the ox would be this uh, place where the ox kicked and resisted his master, uh, there would be a sharp prick and painful experience of that ox. Um, And this is what Jesus begins to describe this, not here in Acts 9, but as Paul reflects on his experience here on the road to Damascus, he gives more insight into what Jesus says to him in Acts 26 before King Agrippa. And that's where we learn that Jesus is saying to Saul, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads. Christ says those words to this man. 
saw, you're up against something that's not going to go away. And as we, as we minister to people, we shouldn't be surprised that they are kicking against God's authority. Uh, we are those people as well. We're just getting used to it. Uh, we haven't fully adapted, by the way, to God's authority yet. Uh, that's why we need worship. That's why we need scripture. That's why we need each other. Now, an ox is bridled and is under the control of a farmer, and that is usually an inescapable reality. And kicking only harms the animal. People kick against the reality of God's control and authority, uh, and it's hard. It's a hard experience. Uh, some scholars wonder if Saul of Tarsus had seen Jesus, had been witnessed to his teaching. Like he hangs out in the shadows when we first meet him, was he there watching from a distance? When Jesus refers to the goads, it's not just perhaps the preaching of the apostles or the activity of the early church. There may be a reference to what Saul had seen in the life of Jesus. That Jesus is saying, Saul, you've, you've seen the kingdom come in my teaching, haven't you? And in, and in my miracles. Just throw that out. We don't know for sure. But he's up against something he can't manipulate or control. Now, people who keep seeing that others are the problem, listen carefully to this. People who see who keep seeing that others are the problem, have to stop seeing things that way. So there's going to be a complete reversal of of the way that Saul sees things. Saul, the problem is in you. What a great relational thing that would be for each of us in our relationships to think more deeply about how we are contributing to the conflict. Saul, you are the one kicking. You are the one. And what's remarkable about the transition into the, the, the person we will know as Saul, of Paul, the apostle, is his ability to now see see himself more clearly, where he says in 2 Timothy, even toward the end of his life, here's how he sees himself. I'm the chief of sinners. Perhaps a year, a year before his death. That's his self-reflection on his life. He's not saying that here on the road to Damascus. Not yet. So it's this transition of Kicking against the goads, this whole process is going to bring about a different way of seeing the problem. And I can't emphasize this enough. And what's going to happen is that his righteousness, supposed righteousness, is going to disappear. (laughs) It's not going to exist. All that he thought he had gained by obeying the law, supposedly obeying the, the law, was now going to be challenged. There is an inescapable reality 
to Saul of Tarsus. He must understand that the God who exists is evaluating him. And he is authorized to evaluate him because he is God. This is an evaluation of Saul of Tarsus, and it is most uncomfortable. It has been said that before there is good news, there is bad news. And I can tell you personally that this was the text that uh, God used to convert me. That's how I got here. I was just visiting a church in North County, San Diego, in a town called Fallbrook, just to be polite to the people who invited me. I can stand up, sing a song. I can do some church stuff and get out of there and get back to my life. I had no interest in an encounter with Jesus. In fact, I thought Jesus and I were just fine. I believed really good things about him. What else am I supposed to do? This, this story that I heard, and God gave me ears to hear, was, was a form of trauma for me. It was an evaluation of my life. And it was seen as though, the, you mean Jesus is knocking people off donkeys from heaven. He's not like lost in, in history, some nice, well-meaning person. I might, you, you mean he does this, and suddenly it's as if I experienced the, the, kind of the time travel of Jesus. <laughs> he travels over 2,000 years of history and hovering above me, looking down into my life. I didn't know what was going on. And all I knew to say, this is 19 years old. All I knew to say was God I didn't understand anything except this man became a famous man. So I, my first theological construct, ready, was a heresy. Here it is, ready? My first theological construct was a heresy, and here's what it was. God must do that to people who become famous, who become important to him, who are important to him. That was my first, that was my first thought. So I didn't know if, God, if Jesus does this to people. Does that make? Is this is this making sense? I didn't know this was. I didn't know what could happen to me. I didn't know, so I said this. This is my first prayer to the living God. Please do in me what you did to that man. I still didn't know if he'd do it. Isn't that interesting? You gotta, gotta realize that non Christians don't have our vocabulary. And they're not going to speak our Christianese. You've got to speak in a way that's very plain to them. And I fortunately had a friend named John Lucas who talked to me, and I asked him, I said, John, I can't stop thinking. It's about four days later. I can't stop thinking about Jesus and the Bible and this man named Saul and what happened. And he walked me through, and I walked him through what happened in the church service, and he said to me, I think you became a Christian. And then I said, I did. Now, my point is this. This is the sovereign grace of God moving upon me. It's called effectual calling. 
It's the transition that happens whenever we're encountering God in his lordship at some level of redeeming love. So he's breathing threats, and he's burdened with these goads, and now he begins to ask questions. And Jesus, in verse 4, says, Saul, Saul. Usually that is an indication of I know you intimately, the double use of the name. Why do you persecute me? And then this question arises, who are you, Lord? He knows he's having an encounter with the divine. This is probably this blinding light that theologians call the Shekinah glory. He hears a voice, and the best place to start is, I think this is a divine encounter. And Jesus has an accusation for him. Why are you persecuting me? And of course, we hear Jesus is fully identified with his church. And if Saul of Tarsus thinks he is serving God's glory, he is way off. God's glory has left the temple and all its sacrifices. And Jesus, the ascended king, is now intervening directly in history, and he's still doing it today. And so he starts, he starts with one question. Of course, there are many questions. If anyone has a divine encounter like this, you know there's more questions. And I would ask you, do you have questions? Do you have any questions about God's lordship in your life? Questions about his authority over you? Every encounter with the living God includes his lordship attributes. This means that he has control over all things. He has authority, and he's always bringing his presence to bear. And Saul is beginning the conversion process. We do not encounter God as the God of great suggestions toward our life. We always encounter God as an absolute authority. God doesn't take surveys and ask what kind of God he should be for us that we would be happy. He always is revealing his lordship. And for us, he reveals his lordship through his revealed word. That leads us then not only to breathing threats and burdened with goads, bringing questions And now he's brought to repentance. Let me just combine the last two. They're really similar. He's brought to repentance, and he's beginning a complete reversal. Now, Jesus just tells him what to do. Jesus tells him to rise, enter the city of Damascus, and you'll be told what to do. Uh, He's been blinded. And I think that is that he would become experientially understanding his condition. He was blind for a number of days, and Ananias is used by God to touch him, and something like scales falls off his eyes. But the risen Christ speaks to him, and the call of Christ has an effect upon him. This is worked out in terms of repentance and faith on his part. 
and he's changing his mind to no longer persecute Christians, but joins the cause of Christ. This is what our Westminster Confession would call effectual calling. This means that God overcomes all human resistance in order to call his elect. And that means that there is a purpose behind the calling that is always fulfilled. It produces the results of the, inten- the, the intended results. Now, so he begins to repent, and we see this evidence of his repentance in Acts chapter 9 because he begins to preach in Acts chapter 9. How about that? Uh, uh, he begins to preach, he begins to debate with the Greek-speaking Jews such that uh, they want to kill him. And, and there's already this reversal going on. The one who wanted to persecute now is being persecuted. And he's lowered out of Damascus in a basket and runs for safety. Can people change? Well, the one that we're talking about today wrote something like 47% of the New Testament. Grace and the implications of grace in the pages of the epistles. The one we've talked about, Saul and his conversion, it's demonstrated on every page of our New Testament. In fact, some have listed the conversion of Saul of Tarsus as included in some in one of the top ten history event top ten greatest events of history. How about that? Saul of Tarsus conversion. How do people change? They encounter Christ. That's how they change. They encounter a mediator. Christ is the mediator that Saul encountered. And now Christ becomes Saul inter- Saul's intercessor, and Christ represents his life and death before the throne of God for Saul. And then how does Saul change, and how do we change? The resources of grace that are in Christ are ours. And if grace can abound to such an angry man that he becomes a lover of people, it can abound to you. How do people change? They remember their own Damascus road. Do what you can to remember how God found you. Even if you trusted Christ at a very young age, think about your own foolishness and your own lack of wisdom and your your need for Christ. How do people change? God works deeply at the at the ways we're seeing others, at the ways we're pointing to others as the problem. That is usually central to the change process. By God's grace, he Saul stops threatening, demanding, and controlling in the hope of managing a certain outcome that will make him happy. He now has a sovereign king whom he can trust for the outcomes of life. How about that? He now has a place for hope. One of his great themes in his epistles. 
On the road to Damascus, he has no resources except his own anger. He had no capacity to suffer. Listen to that again. He had no capacity to suffer, and I want to say something. This is increasingly a problem among Christians today. Somewhere our wires are crossed. We're buying into the cultural narrative of some sort of self-centered life, self-protective life, and we will not suffer. And Jesus says in communication to Ananias, what does he say? Oh, he's a chosen vessel of mine, and I will instruct him and teach him and guide him and mentor him and train him in how to suffer. Suffering is what brings us to the bottom of our resources. And it now turns us, moves us to where the resources can be found. And there are abundant resources continually for we who believe. We're protected. We're protected by the grace of God that's given us the righteousness of Christ, made us beautiful. We see the purpose of Christ and his suffering. We're in on the great purposes of history. And Paul says to his Roman friends in Romans 8, if God is for us, see, that's his interpretation of of the Christian faith. If God is for us, here's here's how it goes, who could be against us? And the God who was once against us when we were his enemies is now for us. He rises that day and walks and his, his, his dignity is restored to him. His humanity is now being made new. He's coming alive to what life's about. He's becoming free. That's how people change. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the gospel that came to me, the gospel that comes to my friends here. And Father, if there's anyone here trying to make sense of what on earth was, what was this all about? I don't understand. I don't come, I don't have a Christian background to understand these terms. Oh God, give them give them the clarity that wasn't in this sermon, Lord. Grant to them the clarity to turn to Christ and cast themselves upon him. Thank you, Father, for the great and profound gospel we have that you are God of change. And help us look at our spouses, our coworkers, our neighbors 
Help us look out upon people and then, oh God, help us look at our own hearts and say, yes, you are a God of change and help me be a change agent in your kingdom work. Jesus, help us do that. In the name of the one who came for us, we pray, amen.